I wish we could do it. We would have a little bit more bread and a little bit more juice. Don't you? I wish we could arrange it where I'd get a good mouthful of it, not just this little, this little stuff. But it's about the heart, amen? I've been on the mission field where we didn't have any juice, and so we used, uh, let's see, we used, uh, what's that? Not Coke, not Sprite. What's the, Dr. Pepper. We used Dr. Pepper on the mission field. No, no, no. All of you that drink that, no, no. You think the Lord was pleased that we used that? Was, that? was that okay on the mission field? Amen, it's about the heart. If you would please get a Bible and turn to the book of Romans. The book of Romans. This is a special Sunday. We're doing things by the book as best that we can in this church, amen? Well, thank you. Uh, I heard two amens, one up front, one in the back. Let me repeat. We're doing things as best as we can in this church by the book. And this church is going to decide whether to affirm or, or disaffirm the recommendation from the elders to ordain two things, to ordain Chuck Reeves into the gospel ministry. And then a second uh, thing that we're asking from the elders that you affirm is that he be affirmed as a teaching pastor in this church. And some of you might be asking, well, what does that mean? Uh, what is that, anything new? Well, no, no. He'll basically be doing what he's always been doing, right? Organically, organically, which is a uh, help with the, uh, the preaching in the pulpit. He believes that he's called uh, by God into the ministry. And unlike uh, many other churches, I'm happy to report that uh, Chuck Reeves is not a woman. Chuck is a male. Biologically, he's a male. He's also cisgender, so I'm, I'm happy about that. Amen? You guys know what cisgender is? Okay, critical race theory, intersectionality, says that <clears throat> cisgender means that if you were born biologically male, you are cisgender if you identify uh, as it relates to that biology. Okay? So amen to that. Right, church? I'm speaking uh, facetiously, but you know what? There's churches out there that are ordaining women. Listen, to be pastors, okay? That's not by the book. Somebody please read Timothy, okay? And unfortunately, this is happening in the evangelical world among brothers whom we thought were okay, like Rick Warren in Saddleback. Thought he was good to go, not good to go. On the Saturday night before Mother's Day, they ordained three women to be pastors in the church. Not good, not good. Not according to Pastor Mark's uh, uh, opinion or your opinion, but according to God's opinion in Timothy. There's three books in the New Testament as to how to run a church and what to do in a church. It's called 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and what's the other one? Titus. That's the seminary. That's how you do ministry by the book. And so praise God, this is a, this is a biggie. In the life of this church from January to December this Sunday is a big deal and we 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 uh, are honored as to what God is doing in calling out God called men and God called women up in this church and up out of this church amen pray that God gets Chuck up out of this church amen to fulfill his call right now some of you are listening to what I'm saying you're like well he's he's patriarchal he's down on women uh, no, you don't know me very well if you're thinking that. Because I and that brother right there, Pastor John, 
led this church to ordain not one, is it two women? I can't even remember how many women. All right? It's, no, it's two. I know it's at least two. One went bye-bye. Yeah, two. One of them is on staff here. Her name's Keisha McRide. Anybody know Keisha? She's been ordained into the ministry, not as pastor. That would not be by the book. But we have affirmed her and her calling and her leadership as minister to children. Amen. So there's a place and a proper place for women in this church. By the book. By the book. Now, none of this was in my notes, but I'm just very excited about what we're doing uh, this morning. <clears throat> Hello, beautiful bride of Christ. Are you doing well? You doing good? Look at you. You could be many places on a Memorial Day weekend, but you chose to worship God. God bless you for being here. There are two big deals that are happening next month. <clears throat> Have you heard about these two big deals? First, the Southern Baptist Convention is meeting and will elect a new president. Two years ago, the convention voted and approved Resolution 9, which affirmed thumbs up to critical race theory and intersectionality as useful analytical tools to interpret the Bible. That is really bad. Thank you, sister. We're together. My hope is the sleeping giant got a serious wake-up call and this convention will vote to reverse that resolution this year. <clears throat> and there are signs that that indeed might be happening. There are more messengers registered for this convention than since the late 80s. Okay? And I plan to be among them this year, as well as with my brother Stephen Vandervelde. And we're going to be representing you officially, in official capacity, and voting in your stead. By the way, it's not too late if you want to come to... Uh, as a messenger and go to Nashville with us, we'd be happy to have you come. At this convention in June, I'll be looking for signs of where we're headed as a convention and praying about our future as a church. Why? Hear this and hear it well. Denominations, like churches, always tend to drift to the left. They never drift to the right. And I'll be looking for a course correction this year like Saddleback Church. It's always a slow fade, and it's never to the right. We, 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 we already have history. Just study the mainline denominations that started to ordain women into the ministry. They all go bye-bye eventually. And now they're ordaining gays and lesbians and blah, 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 blah. It's always a slow fade, brothers and sisters. There are four presidential candidates running, and I'm hoping Mike Stone is elected because he's standing against this critical race theory and intersex, uh, intersectionality uh, garbage. <clears throat> All right, that's one. Second big thing. Thanks to President Trump, the government will issue in June, have you all heard about this? A report on UAPs. Anybody know what a UAP is? Raise your hand. Wonderful, you don't. Many of you do. Uh, so, sorry, a few of you do. Many of you don't. Good. Education time. UAP is short for Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon. Okay? How many of you ever heard of these three words? UFO. So that's the new three-letter word for UFO. UAPs. Okay? And the government has recently ad admitted the existence of a program called the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. And this program found five observables. 
see if we can put these up here on the screen for you. Five observables with these weird aircraft. Number one, instantaneous acceleration. An F-16 fighter can pull 17 Gs before structural failure begins. A human body in a jet can sustain about 9 Gs before we start to go bye-bye, biologically, okay? These unknown objects are doing 300 to 600 Gs. Number two, hypersonic velocity. Our fastest aircraft can reach 3,200 miles per hour. It's the SR-41 or something like that, okay? These, these aircraft, or whatever they are, are observed traveling eight to 11,000 miles per hour. And it's not just being seen by Navy pilots, it's not just being captured on the gun cameras, we have a bunch of historical radar data as it relates to this. Number three, low observability. Pilots are seeing these things and they're saying like, quote, I saw it, but I don't know how to describe it. So you have these trained pilots up in the air who know how to view other things that are in the air and identify them because they're what? Fighter pilots. And these trained pilots are looking at these things saying, what is it? There's no wings, there's no cockpits, there's no ailerons, there's no rivets. Number four, transmedium travel. These UAPs are objects, they can operate in low Earth atmosphere, high Earth atmosphere, Earth orbit, and seemingly underwater without compromising any design characteristic or performance parameters. And all God's people said, that's weird. They're flying water, high, low, they're doing whatever they want to go, transmedium travel. Number five, I think this is fa fascinating. Am I losing anyone? You're thinking, what does this have to do with Romans? Keep listening. Number five, anti-gravity. These objects, they have no wings, no propulsion, but they can defy Earth's gravity. Now, we defy Earth's gravity how? By a plane, hot air balloon. Uh, what else? Oh, we can shoot stuff like a mortar or massive ICBM, right? Eventually, it will succumb to Earth's gravity. These bad boys, they're anti-gravity. And these incidents are not occurring once in a while. They happen at least weekly. Listen to me. Sometimes daily. So it's not a one shot in the dark. This guy's a weirdo. Pastor Mark is listening to a weirdo on YouTube. What's wrong with him? No. 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 Well, I might be a weirdo, but this is what's happening. Okay? So there's a great mystery. Whatever these things are, the fact that they can operate, listen to me, the fact that they can operate with impunity within our restricted airspace is a national security threat. In our 19 intelligence agencies, as far as we know, don't have an answer about this. But because of Trump, it's been mandated that they give a report, and that's why it's coming out in June. Again, how many of you were following this, that you knew what I'm, what I'm talking about? Raise your hand. Not very many of you, okay? Now, so, here, here comes the pivot. Ready? Here comes the pivot. There's mystery to this, right? Is it China or is it Russia? If so, we're in serious trouble because they can do things with our nuclear uh, sites and they can attach a nuclear bomb and we don't know how to stop it and they can over DC. So if it's them, it's like really bad. Number two, if it's us, 
and something like super, super secret, we're not doing a real good job at keeping it super, super secret. <laughs> and the, the third option is, well, what is it? <laughs> and do we really want to start talking about aliens? And like, like seriously? Like, what is this? There's mystery. There's mystery. I want to tell you about a greater mystery, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And just as there are five observables regarding this mystery, I want to show you four observables regarding the mystery of the gospel, or four features, if you would, of the gospel. And as I begin, I'm asking you the question, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? There are distortions of the gospel floating around in the heads of many churchgoers and preachermans. And these distortions have shrunk the gospel. It's like the movie entitled, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Y'all remember that movie, or Honey, I Shrunk the Kids? Well, in this case, it's Honey, I Shrunk the Gospel, okay? For example, there's the gospel of uh, fire insurance. The gospel has been reduced to a get-out-of-jail-free card. Fire insurance, if you would, with little or no call for repentance or surrender to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Rather, the goal is, is people are trying to get you to pray the prayer of salvation. And when they do, it's almost like a Roman Catholic priest. We tell you very quickly, thou art saved because you've saved the prayer of salvation. Is that what you were told? Is that what you were told? That because you pray this prayer of salvation, behold, you are saved. Is that what you believe? That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Next is the gospel of personal therapy. This is seen in excessive force, uh, rather focus, excess, excessive focus on the self, one's problems, finding oneself, the, the psychological health of a person. Have you had conversations with people prone to this kind of thing? Actually, it's not a conversation. It's a monologue, and you just happen to be the closest person there. It's all about them, this, my, my, this, this. All about them, literally. All they talk about is their life. Now, tread with me carefully. To be sure, Jesus came that we might have abundant life, but I'm here to tell you that Jesus Christ came to fix the whole world. Literally. God's kingdom will overthrow and overrule all earthly powers, period. Therefore, to be apolitical or to have no interest or involvement in political affairs because you're caught up with your own individualistic therapeutic world is to get the gospel wrong from the start. In addition, to be anti-political which is a reaction against or a rejection of political involvement because you're caught up in your own world, is to get the gospel wrong, beloved. Is that you? Is that you online? Then there's the gospel of moralism. Moralism reduces the gospel to improvements in behavior. You've heard of home improvement? This is moral improvement, right? And there are rules set by the moralist. Don't smoke or cuss or chew and don't run with those who do right you women who wear pants you're in sin it's the spirit of Jezebel upon thy soul and you better not put on any makeup or cosmetics all you women out there because that's lascivious behavior 
No alcohol, no gambling, and definitely no dancing. No cut loose, foot loose, no rated R movies, no tattoos, etc., 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 ad nauseum. It's the gospel of moralism. Promises to save sinners if they will only behave. We need the church lady up on the screen now. Only behave, behave. Commit yourself to moral improvement. Is that you? Is that what you believe? Do you think that you're saved because you avoid certain sins? Is that the gospel? No. It's the gospel of moralism. The gospel of moralism saves no one. It only produces self-righteous people in the church with their little behave moral rules. The book of Romans is perhaps the most important explanation of the gospel in the New Testament. And my purpose today is daunting. Not going to happen without the help of God. And thank God at the end when I'm done preaching, he always cleans up my messes, praise the Lord. I would like to preach the, the message of the entire book of Romans to you today. And I have four features. It reveals God's character. It creates a new humanity. This is beautiful. It fulfills God's promise to Israel, and it unifies the church. Amen. So I hope I have your introduction. Let's go to number one. Amen? The gospel reveals God's character. If you're writing notes, go ahead and fill in the blank there. This is a summary of chapters 1 through 4. The gospel reveals God's character. And since a good chunk of churchgoers read their Bible only on occasion, and since most theological works neglect the Old Testament, we have a massive blind spot, if you would, when it comes to reading the Bible from left to right, from the Old Testament into the New Testament. And it impacts our view of God and what he does, not only that, but how he does things. For example, like the virgin birth, why that way? Are you kidding me? I mean, it just ruins a whole bunch of Christmas messages because we have to talk about a virgin and what's a virgin and now we're talking about sexual parts and, you know, it's like embarrassing. Like, why the virgin birth? Well, that's tied to Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Okay? So there's a, there's a blind spot as it relates to uh, God's character. And the blind spot includes this. Humanity will inevitably engage in some form of idolatry which is cooked up by the spiritual evil powers. Uh, and there's various vocabulary terms in the Old Testament. The most prominent among them is the sons of God. Okay? So the number one problem in the Old Testament is the number one problem in the New Testament, and that is idolatry. And who's cooking that up? The spiritual evil powers and rebellion. So it's divine and human rebellion saying yes and saying no way, Yahweh. Okay? That's what's happening. I mean, we could just roll out the first of the Ten Commandments is what? You will have no other... Say it out loud. God's before me. He like... Elohim is the word. Okay? So in chapters 1 through 4, Paul reveals God's character in relation to idolatry and what does he lead out with? 
the, the uh, character of God is revealed, first of all, in the book of Romans, in righteous wrath. Pick up with me in verse 16 of Romans chapter 1. Um, Jacob, go ahead and just follow me because I'm done holding that thing, okay? Just you go ahead and follow and hit the slide, my brother. Thank you. Uh, verse 16 of Romans 1. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, follow, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. Wow. This is, this is heavy stuff right out of the gate. Theological mouthful. How did God make it evident to them? In chapters 1, 2, and 3, God makes his presence and his existence very clearly by two things with two c's number one creation number two conscience so that the pagan man the moral man the religious man everybody's guilty before god because of that there's no innocent little um you know uh, persons or family out there in the islands where we haven't reached yet with the gospel okay Paul is breaking down in a very extensive way what Jesus Christ said in a one-sentence summary of the law and the prophets, which is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, right? That's the summary of the Old Testament prophets and the law. And humanity's big problem is we do not love God naturally. All of us are guilty in engaging in some form of idolatry. We'll take something else or someone else before God. That is our lot, and that is really bad because this God of creation is so pure and loving and great and mighty. He deserves our respect. He deserves to be obeyed perfectly. And it didn't take very long in the Bible for us to mess that up, right? How long do you read in the Bible before Adam and Eve messed that up? Is it chapter 1? No, creation. Chapter 2? More creation. Chapter 3? <laughs> we mess it up. When you read it kind of naturally, it, it kind of seems as if it might have actually been day 1 is when, when, they, uh, when they sinned. Okay. Well, perhaps you're feeling down about that or or feeling negative, or this might be discomforting for you. Listen, beloved, when you go soft on sin, the, ama the, the uh, amazing grace, you're going to get rid of amazing, okay? If you go soft on sin, you're going to cut the nerve of the gospel. Now, here's where it gets sweet. Pick up in verse 21. This is the, uh, what did I use a couple weeks ago? With the, what's the real nice, expensive meat? Uh, Kobe beef, right? It's too rich, but it's the it's the, the prime of prime. Verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no, uh, no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Paul, could you please write a longer sentence? I'm losing people already. 
what a theological mouthful he's got here. In other words, what I just read, God himself satisfied his wrath for sin in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing, church? Have I lost anybody? Stay with me now. Why did he do that? Look at verse 25 right in the middle. This was to demonstrate whose righteousness? His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How can a holy God allow sinful men and women into his holy presence? That is not just. That is not right. And God fixes it because not only, <clears throat> not only is the uh, righteous wrath of God revealed in chapters 1, 2, and 3, and 4, but also the, the righteous mercy of God is revealed. This is amazing. And then Paul starts to apply in verse 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Who's doing the boasting in the context of Romans? The Jews. The Jews. Where's the boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. That leads us to chapter 1. And who does he tee up in chapter... Oh, sorry. That leads us to chapter 4. Who is he teeing up in chapter 4? Abraham, as an example. How is he an example? Abraham was justified, listen, before he was circumcised, before the law came. He was justified because he believed the promise of God. And that's what he's teeing up. He's also uh, bringing in, in chapter 4, uh, David as well. I didn't uh, bring that up the last couple times. I uh, took a shot here at Romans. He brings in the person of David as well. And he quotes what David writes in Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, to show that justification is by faith alone. Praise God, church. Listen, God must be worshipped because of his righteous wrath. Otherwise, if God's not wrathful, he's not good. Okay? So don't, don't ever be afraid to affirm God's wrath. God's wrath is good. It's just. It's righteous. Praise God. This God, who's all-powerful, he actually does hate evil. And he's going to punish evildoers um, and the evil deeds done. Praise God for that. But also, praise God for his mercy. His mercy. Amen? Amen? Do I, do I have to go back and re-preach number one? Are you ready to go number two? Are we good? Okay. Y'all, Are you a little sleepy this morning? You okay? Let's go to number two. The gospel creates a new humanity. This is seen in chapters five to eight. Five to eight. If you're writing these down, I've got mm, three or four, maybe five. Of what does this hum new humanity look like in these chapters? The gospel literally creates a new humanity. In the book of, of, of uh, Ephesians, Paul talks about this third man, if you would, that was created in Jesus Christ, the Jew and the Gentile, and he makes them one. It's a new humanity. What does this look like? Well, first, we have a new position we have a new position. This is seen in uh, Romans 8, 1 through 8. What does this new position mean? If we believe the gospel, if we are in Christ, and this, this means there is no condemnation for us. <laughs> Isn't this beautiful? I mean, think about some of the dirty deeds that you have done in your life in the past. 
And because you're in Jesus Christ, there is now therefore no condemnation for we who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? It's wonderful. Praise God. We're freed from sin and death. This new position is what Jesus Christ accomplished in his death, not through the law of Moses. It's through Christ. Here's another second reality about our position. We have a new guest, a new resident in our home, in our heart. His name is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. This is seen in verses 9 through 14 of Romans chapter 8. And before I go on any further, let's make sure we understand who the Holy Spirit is. Because if you're a normal church, half of the evangelicals, which is 50, uh, 59% in this case, believe that the Holy Spirit is a force and not a personal being. Okay? Everyone, I need everyone's attention. The Holy Spirit is not an it. Okay? He's not a power. Like that one charismatic chorus, send it on down, send it on down, Lord, let the Holy Ghost come on down. Bad theology. Bad theology. The Holy Spirit is not an it or a person, uh, a power. He's a person, okay? So what does this mean, that we have a new guest within the Holy Spirit? The same Holy Spirit that gave Jesus Christ strength when he walked in this world filled with devils and the flesh and the world, the same Holy Spirit that gave this Christ, this Jesus, the Son of God, the strength to uh, follow his Father's will perfectly resides in you. He resides in you. And he's going to strengthen you, beloved, and me to continue in faith. That's what it means. And the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the grave, he lives within you. Right? He lives within you. And the same Holy Spirit that Christ uh, that raised rather Christ from the dead is going to raise up you if you are indeed in Christ he's going to raise you from the dead isn't that wasn't wonderful this is what the Holy Spirit does of course among other things but here I'm emphasizing that the new humanity is what we have a new position now we have a new guest his name is the Holy Spirit praise God praise God for this number three we have a new adoption I'm seeing this in verses 15 to 17. What does this mean? We get a new family. We get a new family. If you are outside of Christ, guess who your daddy is? Your daddy is the devil. Your daddy's the devil. That should, that should be enough to wake everybody up outside of Christ and run to Jesus Christ to get a new daddy. Amen. You can have God the Father, the one that spoke worlds into existence, as your father. This is difficult to hear because the first theological education we get about who God is comes from our physical father, human father, and our human uh, mother. And boy, just everyone has the perfect family, perfect parents, amen? Or just the perfect father, perfect mother, no. And so when that gets messed up, guess what? That messes up our view of Heavenly Father, God. But in the gospel, all that gets fixed. We get a new father. We are now adopted. We have intimacy with God. And not only that, oh, this is good news. We get an inheritance. This father's a good father, and he has an inheritance for us in Jesus Christ. There's a fourth thing I want to highlight as it relates to the gospel creating a new humanity, we have a new hope. I see this in verses 18 to 25, a new hope. 
Now, when you hear the word hope, do not equate that with, with mere wishful thinking, right? Like, I hope I win the lottery. Can I get an amen, right? Uh, that would be, man, can you imagine? I mean, cashing in, I'm a $300 million, you know, I'm a millionaire now. You know what I would do with $300 million? I mean, literally. I would raise these facilities to the earth. I would just flatten everything. Amen, Pastor John? And we would build state-of-the-art building for Jesus. Amen. And since we have about, I have about 300 million, uh, I, would, I would give a whole bunch of money to every member of this church. It would be fantastic. And the media would say, Pastor makes millionaires of his church members. And then everybody else will try to come back in and we'll say, Sorry, you ain't with us. Right? No, no, no. Yeah. And some people that just left, oh, we just left that church. Oh, I know, we should have not left it. Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea what he said. And I don't care. Amen. All right. So when you hear the word hope, don't hear mere wishful thinking. In the Bible, hope means delayed reality, right? Delayed reality. It's real, it's coming, and it is sure. That's what the blessed hope is in Jesus Christ. Now, concerning this hope are two things in the Romans uh, uh, chapters here, in verse eight, uh, chapters 8. The hope for the Christian, but also the hope for creation. Creation. For the Christian, we have the hope of being released from this present grief and suffering of this world. Praise God, we have the hope of a future glory. And today's grief and today's suffering and today's pain is nothing compared with the future glory that will be revealed in us and to us. In the meantime, we're to wait patiently and confidently. Like one of our sisters that I saw this past week in the church hallway, I asked her how she was doing, and she said something like, just waiting and ready to go home. Oh, how precious that was to me. How encouraging that was to me. Her eyes on the prize. She has heaven in her heart. That really encouraged me. That's a sister with hope. But this hope applies not just to the Christian, this hope applies to creation itself. I wish I could pull out verses 19 to 22, but it blows away this individualistic, self-centered, therapeutic, Jesus and me, Jesus and me, understanding of the gospel. And perhaps if we were rolling out Romans 8, 19 to 22, which says all of creation groans and is waiting to... Uh, is waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. That's us. That's Old Testament term. Baptized, changed, speaking of us as Christians. It's amazing. Perhaps if we were going about and showing how the gospel changed not just individual lives, but all of the world, even nature itself, we wouldn't have PETA and all this other liberal garbage who are like, you know, save the whale, save the uh, uh, whoever's dying on the ice, the polar bears and all this, right? Of course, that's just another form of idolatry. Number three. Number three, the gospel fulfills God's promise to Israel. Now, I'm going to be in trouble with some of you because I'm not going to spend a lot of time, uh, at least for today, on 9 through 11. 
but I will summarize it. In chapter 9, there's an overview of God's sovereignty and Israel's selection in the past. So you have all of these, drop the mic, uh, what can separate us from the love of God right at the bottom of chapter 18, right? Height, nor death, principality, angel, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Amen. And so Paul is serving up, beginning in verse 9, the question of this. Well, if that's the way, if that's true, then how come everybody ain't getting saved? And this is where he's bringing in um, Esau and Jacob. And he's quoting the verse that says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. So this God who is creator... Guess what that means? This creator has the rights, his prerogatives as creator, which means he can do anything he wants to with his creation. And isn't it amazing that there's a group of, group of people in this church that he is pleased to save in Jesus Christ? What is this mystery? How is that? Mercy, mercy, by grace you're saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the what? It's a gift. Not just offered. No, no it's not. Sorry, evangelist that preaches this. It's not just a gift offered. Anybody? Anybody? It's a gift bestowed here, here, here. He bestows it. He bestows it. It is a gift of God, comma, lest anyone should what? You see? You see that filthy root of man, pride and self-righteousness? God has set it up where we do absolutely nothing to get saved. Not even faith is generated from the heart of a depraved man. It's all God's grace. I'm telling you what you get saturated in this great gospel you might become a Pentecostal amen you might get a little stirred in your emotions a little bit more amen the golf clap stuff huh? yeah yeah he deserves far more than that he deserves you to sing and this thing well I don't sing real good who cares Newsflash, worship's not for you. I don't know this song. Not for you. It's for Jesus, for God. How many people actually worship this morning with the music? How many people are worshiping now with the preaching of the word? How you're listening? My my passion, don't, don't be offended at my passion. My passion's for the glory of God. I want him to get all up in the, all the glory up in this place. Chapter 9 overviews the sovereignty of God and Israel's selection in the past. God, I never put this together in my feeble brain growing up in church. We were there every time the doors were open. 
I had no problem with God choosing that old man who can't have sex and have babies with the old woman, right? He chose Abraham. Well, what about all the other old men out there? He didn't choose them. I didn't have a problem with that. It's God's right. He chose that couple, again, who couldn't do anything, amen, to have children, and through his seed, all the nations would be blessed. <laughs> and that's why the first child is named what? Laughter. Because <laughs> that's hilarious. His name is, say it out loud, church, Isaac. That's hilarious. God gets all the glory. Can I say it? The gospel begins with a joke. Amen. <laughs> oh, and this, this wisdom of God, this infinite wisdom of God, it just flips the wisdom of the world, doesn't it? And he shakes real omnipotent arms strong and puts everything else upside down, which is actually right side up in his view, but you get the point, right? Chapter 9, that's what it's about. Of course, the protest says, that's not fair. And then basically... Uh, the next protest is, uh, well, we're a bunch of robots now, we're a bunch of robots. And the answer to that is, who are you to answer back to God? That's Romans 9. Romans 10, Paul overviews God's righteousness and Israel's present rejection. Okay? This is where I think some preachers go too far in Israel's present rejection with the destruction of uh, Jerusalem, AD 70, right? Okay? Because of what happens in chapter 11, where Paul overviews the wisdom of uh, God as it relates to Israel's future restoration and I don't know if you agree with me on this it's okay you don't you don't have to it's not uh, uh, up in the doctrine you know with uh, the gospel and the trinity that kind of thing but something significant happened when the nation of Israel became a nation once again okay and I think that King Jesus when he actually does come back he's going to get some dust in, from Jerusalem on his feet again and I think this king of Israel, King Jesus, is going to set up his kingdom in Jerusalem when he returns again. That's what I believe. And I think in the end times, there's going to be this outpouring of renewal and restoration among the Jews in coming to see Messiah, Yeshua, as, as the Son of God, as, as their Savior. Amen. Amen. That's why the world wants to destroy Israel. That's why we should be supporting Israel. Some of you don't look happy, so let's go to number four. The gospel unifies the church. The gospel unifies the church. And this is, includes uh, chapters 12 through 16. A unified church uses their gifts in service. I'm going to give you a couple manifestations of how this unified church, what it looks like. So if you're taking notes, that's like the first one, okay? A unified church uses their gifts. In chapter 12, Paul urges his readers to make their bodies living sacrifices for the glory of God. And as you often probably heard in preaching, and it's so real and happens too often in our lives, the living sacrifices end up crawling off the altar right because it's painful sometimes to follow Jesus it's painful you bleed sometimes in following Jesus just like Jesus bled when he's loving his wife the bride he had to bleed for her and die for her 
Pick up, if you would, in Romans 12. Chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. How does that happen? Through the word, beloved. That's why there's such a spiritual warfare that, that descends upon us between Sundays in not getting in the word. It's all about the mind, renewing of the mind. That's how we're transformed. Purpose clause, the end of verse 2, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. There's also specific lists in this chapter which I would love to highlight, but I can't do. In chapter 13, Paul discusses the believer's responsibilities towards society. So a unified church not only uses their gifts in service, a unified church understands its proper relationship with civil power. Pick up in verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 1, where it says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they that have opposed uh, will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. We could get the illustration of the flashing blue and red lights behind us as we're being pulled over for speeding, right? Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. That's why I like to call policemen, they're like civil pastors with a gun. Amen. They're like civil pastors. Verse 4, but if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a, second time, minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God. And isn't this next phrase absolutely true about those who are collecting our taxes, devoting themselves to this very thing? <laughs> isn't that the truth? Verse 7. People who say the Bible's boring, they, they're not reading the Bible. Amen. Verse 7, render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So what's going on here? A unified church, they have people using their gifts and service, but also a unified church understands its proper relationship with civil power. And boy, did we get tested with this as a nation last year, 2020 COVID, right? I mean, wow, what? That was difficult. And churches were uh, tested regarding their ecclesiology, i.e. doctrine of church. I believe this passage has been misunderstood and misapplied, particularly when corrupt civil leaders have weaponized the COVID crisis. Some leaders diminished religious liberties and church leaders made decisions based on their view of the church and its relationship to civil authority. So let's be clear about this. When civil law or civil leaders stand in defiance of King Jesus and his laws, 
they are not to be obeyed. Period. Period. King Jesus is king of all kings and lord of all lords, and his authority stands high above all earthly powers. So, when supposedly this minister of God and civil power is making ordinances and laws that go against the one who allowed him to have that power, the church is not to obey them. The church is not to obey them. Romans 13 needs to be read along with Revelation 13, and that's kind of easy to remember. Right? So some pastor went gangbusters, beat their church over the head. We must obey. We must obey. Right? And they didn't know about Revelation 13. You guys know what Revelation 13 is about? Revelation 13 says that uh, the evil spiritual powers are behind the civil powers, which is also true. So uh, Romans 13 is pro, right, civil government. Revelation 13 is con civil government because there's evil powers behind civil powers. Both are true. So how do you know when to go and when to obey? Back to the book. Back to the Bible. Right? Oh, beloved. You better get this strong. Okay? Listen to me very carefully. You better get this strong. And as a church, you better be agreeing with us or there's going to be some problems in the future days of this church. If the current government, the way it's being run now, if it continues, it's headlong rush into hell. May there not be a crisis of discernment in this church. I don't care what other churches are doing. Well, I do care as it relates to God's people. But we need wisdom. We need wisdom. What is this church going to do? What is this church going to say when the church mandates that we, the, the staff that we hire, uh, it must be okay for us to uh, hire a homosexual minister right are you going to stand with the elders and say no no can't do that are you going to compromise and be part of the apostasy that is already occurring right before our very eyes right sounds so dramatic and blockbuster but these are the days in which we live beloved listen it's not a time for cowards amen it's not a time for cowards it's time for courage and confidence in the word of God. Amen. Praise God for the police in this church. Amen. We support, we back the blue up in this church. Amen. How many of y'all heard uh, our brother James on Wednesday? Didn't he do a fantastic job? James, thank you, my brother. You're so gifted as a uh, communicator. Have all the high confidence in you, brother, as a speaker. So good. So good. So, a unified church uses their gifts in service, understands its proper relationship with civil power. Here's another thing a, a unified church does. It follows the law of love with weaker believers. My time is fleeting. I must hurry, hurry, hurry. Follows the law of love with weaker believers. What do you mean, Pastor Mark? I mean this. If someone thinks it's wrong to eat meat or any food that has been sacrificed to an idol, they should not be judged. That's what was going on in chapter 14, 1 through 4, 
and verse 6b. Or, if someone thinks some days are more sacred than others, they should not be judged. Chapter 14, verses 5 to 6a. Now, follow how the law of love works in this context in chapter 14, picking up in verse 13. Very quickly, please. Chapter 13, oh, sorry, chapter 14, verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. Why would he say that? Because they were judging one another. He's doing this. I don't like it. He's doing it. All this stuff. But rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother's hurt, you're no longer walking according to love. There it is. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Isn't that beautiful? What's the kingdom of God about? Righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit. And look at verse 18. For he who in this way, what way? Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit who serves Christ in this way is acceptable to God and approved by men. There's another way the gospel unifies the church. In chapter 15, Paul talks about how Christians should live in right relations to others. He writes about his travel plans and prayers for his uh, Roman audience. And then finally, chapter 16. Whew, somebody get a fan. This is all Romans. Man. Getting worn out here. We made it to chapter 16. All right? Now, here he greets a few specific friends, gives some final instructions. This is probably the most neglected uh, chapter in all of Romans, and since everyone else skips it, let's do the same thing, right? Wrong. You know I was going to say wrong, didn't you? No. For example, true or false, Paul wrote the letter to the church at Rome. False. Look at Romans 16, 22. Ha, 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 I got you. Who wrote the letter to Romans? Say it out loud when you read it. Thank you. Paul literally didn't write the letter. Dude named Tertius did, right? That's not fair, Pastor Mark. You embarrassed me. I'm mad at you. I'm going to leave the church. In the first century world, if I wanted to write you a letter, uh, write a letter to you, two things could happen. I could write the letter myself, or I could use a secretary like Paul did. Hence, Romans 16, 22. Now, the next stop, uh, the next step, rather, would be to drop the letter off at the post office and send it on down the line, right? No, they didn't have the post office. So, I would either personally take the letter to you or send someone else on my behalf. If I sent someone on my behalf, that person was called a diakonos. Everybody say diakonos. Diakonos. We woke up someone in this section over here. Diakonos. Now, can you hear the English, wor uh, the English word in the Greek word diakonos? What would your guess be? What's the English word that you hear in diakonos? Deacon, bingo. Paul uses this word for a woman named Phoebe, diakonos. Phoebe was part of a very popular TV show called Friends. And, no. Thank you for laughing. We just lost the youth with that one. 
Paul calls Phoebe a diakonos in verse 1. This does not necessarily suggest she read the letter to the church on arrival. Letter carriers did not function as lectors in the ancient world. It's common knowledge in the ancient first century world that a diakonos slash deacon is a servant. In this case, the servant is simply carrying out the task of what? Being a letter carrier. We might use the term courier. The letter carrier was one that had to be trusted. Big deal. And we have many copies, Greek copies of this letter, different Greek manuscripts, okay? And at the end of some of those Greek manuscripts, it reads, quote, the letter was written to the Romans from Corinth through Phoebe. Now, because of what we know in verse 22, right, it's clear Tertius was the secretary, so it's almost 100%, I would argue, likely that Phoebe was the courier, the letter carrier, the diakonos, okay? If you had the money, you could pay for that person's travel. If that person was wealthy or had the means on their own, they would pay their own way. And that leads us to what Paul calls Phoebe in verse 2 of chapter 16. She has been a what? A helper of many and of myself as well. The term prostatis can also refer more broadly to a guardian or helper, often meaning someone who takes the lead in ensuring someone else's protection and provision. In other words, patronage. In the ancient world, this frequently took the form of patronage in which women could be participants. So Paul's commendation of Phoebe indicates that she was his and many others' patron or benefactor. In other words, she had taken upon herself to ensure the practical well-being of many through hospitality and financial assistance. And this support indicates she probably possessed significant wealth. She was most likely one wealthy woman. Can I get an amen? Right? It's precious. Some commentators have suggested that the letter is impersonal because it seems Paul did not begin the church at Rome, right? They implied Paul did not have a connection with the church. However, chapter 16 seems that Paul, in fact, did have personal contact with very key members of the church. I mean, just take a quick look at 16 as we go. Look at how many people are named in chapter 16, very quickly. How many people are named in the chapter? I counted 27 persons named. Isn't that cool? And look at how many times the word greet is used in chapter 16. Greet, greet. Look at verse 6, 7, 8, 9. Greet, 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 greet. I count 17 times. By the way, that's in the imperative. In other words, he's ordering them. He's giving them a directive to greet one another. Why do you think Paul would give them that at the bottom slam dunk of Romans? They weren't greeting one another. There was a little holy huddle here and an unholy huddle here, and they, didn't, they were all cliques and Jew and Gentile. Problem! But the gospel fixes it. The gospel fixes it. Perhaps it's because they were not greeting one another that Paul tells them to do that. Beloved, hear me. Not every church is unified. So we add to our list of what a unified church looks like, uses their gifts, understands proper relationship with civil power, 
follows the law of love with weaker breather, uh, breathers. <laughs> weaker brothers. <laughs> Live in right relations with one another. And here's, here's the last one, according to chapter 16. Affirms one another and greets one another. Right? We need to affirm one another for the specific things we do. If this gospel that's individualistic and therapeutic where we're a bunch of belly-button Baptists, we won't have the the self-assurance and confidence and our identity in Jesus Christ, we're not going to be affirming one another, right? Like I did with James. Praise God for James. Amen? Amen. Was anyone offended? Well, he didn't call out my name. See? Right? I remember when I, when I first came here, John, you will remember this, right? For the business meetings, I started to tee up. Hey, let's encourage people in the middle of those were the former Baptist business meeting days. Let's start affirming people for when we see them fulfilling the vision, right? And, and you know what happened. Well, he didn't call my name. It's either that or, or, or he or she's doing this and he didn't say that name. Instead of saying, yes, we affirm that, Pastor Mark, Pastor John. We affirm what they're doing. Praise God. See how the gospel gets our individual self-centered stuff out of us this is crucial beloved this is crucial apathy and individualism will kill this church so at the end of chapter uh, 16 it's affirming others and greeting one another how can you follow the command to greet one another when you're not with the church when it gathers for worship okay those of you that are online, if you're older and you're still concerned about the COVID thing, you should remain on, uh, online. Amen. Be blessed. Be at peace. Amen. Okay? But we've got imperatives in the Bible where the very essence of the church is the gathered physical church. Okay? So I'm urging, I'm urging uh, that we maintain that. In summary, four features of the gospel. Reveals God's character, creates a new humanity, fulfills God's promise to Israel, and it unifies the church. Amen. Let's pray together.